Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our executive pastor, Manny Colazzo. Have you ever been ghosted? <laughs> you know, if you're using one of those uh, popular dating apps or websites to meet people, I'm sure you know what that means, and you probably even have experienced what it means to be ghosted. But if you've never heard of what that word, heard of that word used in that way, perhaps you're thinking of that it might have something to do with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore's 1990 movie, Ghost. It doesn't. And even though ghosting is not a new phenomenon, it has been happening in social and professional settings, It has become easier to do to each other since the advent of social media and electronic communication. Ghosting, it's when you've been in communication with someone and suddenly, without explanation, they cut off all contact. Just like a ghost, they disappear as if they've never existed. It's a form of nonverbal communication, a silent way of saying, you're just not interested or at least unsure about continuing the friendship. Can everybody say rude? Rude. Depending on the reasons why, that could even be cowardly, you know? There are other reasons why people ghost each other. But have you ever felt ghosted by God? Imagine that things have been on point between you and God and One day, you're suddenly feeling disconnected. Things seem out of pocket. And when you ask what happened, silence. See, that's the reason why ghosting is so frustrating is that there there are no specifics. The person being ghosted is left in the dark. Where are you, God? Praying seems pointless. Worship feels wasted. Spiritual practices lose their meaning. What happened? What changed? Has God ghosted you? I remember exactly what it felt like the first time I thought God had distanced himself from me. And I want you to understand that when Jesus came into my life when I was 17, I had such an overwhelming sense of gratitude because of what he had done for me that I gladly relinquished myself to him with reckless abandon. There was a new outlook, a new purpose for my life. There was this new energy. Everything seemed brighter. Everything just seemed better because, hey, God had accepted me. My sins had been forgiven. Heaven was guaranteed. Naively, I thought that this closeness that I felt with him would never go away until one day we lost that loving feeling. And it was gone, gone, gone. (laughs) Out of the blue, it's like he wasn't there. Elvis had left the building. He went dark. It was so disorienting because there was no warning, no explanation given. It felt like I was dehydrated. You know, like when your mouth and throat is so dry that it hurts to follow. But this was a swallow, and this was a spiritual dryness. One that I felt down deep to the bones of my soul. 
if the soul did have bones. Emotionally, I was anxious. Mentally, I felt distressed, wondering, God, have you abandoned me? Why does it feel like you're ignoring me? Do you even care anymore? Over the past 31 years of following Jesus, I've experienced divine distance many times. Have you? Have you ever felt ghosted by God? Why does God sometimes feel far away? Why do we go through seasons in which it seems like he's hiding from what's happening around us and ignoring what's happening to us? Well, that is the question that Psalm 10 helps us grapple with. Let's read how the psalmist expresses this dilemma in the first verse. He says, O Lord, why do you stand far, so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? Even though these profound questions can be triggered by a myriad of life's difficult experiences, the context of this psalm frames it out for us. These questions are being asked as the psalmist is feeling the grief, the distress that one would feel when seeing wickedness run rampant and wicked people succeeding. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? The wicked arrogantly hunt down the poor. Let them be caught in the evil plan and the evil they plan for others. For they brag about their evil desires. They praise the greedy and curse the Lord. The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. Yet they succeed in everything they do. They do not see your punishment awaiting them. They sneer at all their enemies. They think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We will be free of trouble forever. Their mouths are full of cursing, lies, and threats. Trouble and evil are on, their li- on the tips of their tongues. It's so easy when we think of wicked people to think of extreme examples, like dictators, Stalin or Hitler, or serial killers, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, the Kodiak Killer, or Jeffrey Dahmer. But the reality is that everyday humans can be wicked too. These days, people have such a creative and sophisticated capacity for evil that it's hard for us to even imagine. A truly wicked person casing your neighborhood, your kid's school, a friend's small business, or your church for casing those environments for vulnerabilities so that they can exploit them. They can be so slick that it can take years to realize just how duplicitous they are. See, the wicked are expert connivers and manipulators constantly on the prowl looking for an innocent person or opportunity to exploit just to get what they want. That's the kind of person that is being described. I'm sure over the past couple years as we've seen wickedness in all of its forms spreading, I'm sure we've all asked God a version of these two questions. Why, God? Why do you feel so distant when evil seems to be winning? More popular is, why do you let bad things happen 
to good people. But have you ever asked this question in this way? God, why do you let good things happen to bad people? For example, just three days ago, perhaps you read about it online or saw it on the news, a former police officer who was fired for drug charges burst into a daycare center in Thailand killing dozens of preschoolers and teachers. After this, he returned home, killed his wife and child, and then himself. God, why? Why do you seem to hide? Why do you allow wickedness to run rampant? Can't you see what they're doing? And since he seems to have distanced himself and turned a blind eye eye to it, the writer proceeds in verses 2 through 11 to inform God about the vile character and the malicious activities of the wicked person. What stood out to me about this description was the three times the passage mentioned what the wicked think about God. If what we believe determines how we live, then the distorted beliefs about God are the root from which all of their destructive behavior and choices flow from. Look at verse four. The wicked are too proud to seek God. Why? Because they seem to think that God is dead. I think it was the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who coined the idea that God was dead. And what he meant by that was that all the achievements and the advancements of man in the 17th and 18th century had all of a sudden made God unnecessary. God could be eliminated as the reference point for life, morality, virtue, values, and order in life. And it was as a result of that kind of thinking that man was crowned to be master of the universe enthroned at the center of the universe. Ever since then, excuse me, even though we can, tra- we can trace many of our modern day twisted, and, twisted beliefs and aberrant lifestyles to that period of time, I would say that that's not where our moral degradation began. It started much, much earlier than that. Adam and Eve were the first to express that God was unnecessary. You see, I know we refer to that period of time as the fall, but it wasn't a fall at all. It was a rebellion. It was a revolt against God. God, you are unnecessary. I have figured it out. I can do it on my own. Ever since then, every human being has been affected by this internal propensity to dethrone the true and living God and crown themselves a master of the universe. Some of us, some of us humble out and we push back and resist that tendency. And others, like the wicked, embrace it and they live it out loud and proud. Since the wicked arrogantly believe that God is dead and that man possesses ultimate solutions, they don't see the need for intervention and direction or or wisdom from God in this life. As they assess themselves, they believe that they have what it takes to define what is right 
and wrong for themselves. They can figure out a way to save themselves from any trouble. So they don't yearn for rescue and salvation. And it's this lack of humility, this overestimation of themselves that brings us to the first point of this five-point description of the wicked. Number one, the wicked are arrogant. The wicked are arrogant. What's amusing to me is that even though the wicked person is convinced, absolutely sure God is dead, he is unnecessary, he does not exist, they sure do have lots of opinions about this non-existent God. Why is that? It's because no matter how defiant they can be, they can never be 100% certain. See, they have to continually suppress the evidence that is around them. That all over this created universe, there is evidence that it has been created by a creator. And they live in that world. In addition to that, they suppress the very image of God that has been baked into every human being. It is inescapable. God exists. And no matter how much they plug their ears, cover their eyes, they can't escape it. Another distorted belief they have about God is found in verse 11. The wicked think God isn't watching us. He has closed his eyes and won't even see what we do. Since the wicked believe God is dead, then there's no ultimate accountability to factor into their decisions. They will live as if they can get away with anything they want to do. Another insight into what they believe about God is in verse 13. They think God will never call us into account. And then also in verse 5, they do not see your punishment awaiting them. Again, since the wicked believe God is dead, then there will be no final judgment to consider. God is dead, there is no accountability. God is dead, there is no judgment. I can do what I want to whomever I want, and I will not be judged. And the second of this five-point description of the wicked is that the wicked are godless. Number one, the wicked are arrogant. Number two, the wicked are godless. Number three, the wicked are greedy. This is seen in verse two by how they treat the poor. They arrogantly hunt down the poor. In verse three, they brag about their evil desires and their plots to enrich themselves from the poor. Doesn't this hit close to home for us Westerners? Now, I I don't think it's solely an American issue. Greed, whether it's the lust for more of what you don't have, or it's the other angle on greed, the obsession with not having, with not having enough, I'm sorry, with not losing what you already have. Greed is a universal human heart issue. And it doesn't take much for us to see this attitude towards money and possessions being practiced in our culture. Especially with what he says about the wicked in verse three, that they praise the greedy. Oliver Stone's 1987 movie, Wall Street, I think illustrates this point well. Have you seen it? 
Remember it? It's been a long time, but this is not an endorsement of the movie. Okay? This is just an illustration and one small clip. The movie is about Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, who's a young stockbroker who becomes involved with Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas. Gecko is a wealthy, high-powered, unscrupulous corporate raider who ran financial markets like he was a god. Well, there's this famous scene in which he delivers a speech to the shareholders of Teldar Paper Corporation. Listen to what he says about greed. The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Doesn't that clip do a great job of capturing the soul of materialism? Greed. Greed is the highest virtue needed in order to achieve success. This is the mindset of the wicked man or woman bragging about the schemes and the strategies that they've crafted to lure people and entrap them. Like get-rich-quick schemes, emails, or chain letters claiming that somehow someone inherited some money and randomly wants to wire you some of it if you would just give them your account number. They honestly believe that it's a good thing to be obsessed with the insatiable desire to always want more and never be content. And in their greed, they hunt for the needy the naive, and mercilessly rip them off to get what they want. I just got back from Florida from visiting my mother for her 72nd birthday, and she recently bought a car. Because it was a a Kia, she showed me a newspaper article about how 2015 to 2019 Kias and Hyundais have become easy targets for car thieves because they lack some basic auto theft prevention technology. Someone had to discover that, that those years of Kias and Hyundais were vulnerable. They didn't have the electronic immobilizers. And then they had to devise a plan on how to steal them, then go on the prowl to find one to pounce on. 
Where are you, God? Since she lives in an active senior community, it worries me that there are actually people out there who dedicate their time dreaming up of ways to take advantage of seniors. Scouring the internet for phone numbers, emails, social security numbers, and other sensitive information to steal their identity and access their accounts. The wicked are arrogant. They're godless. They're greedy. God, why are you hiding your face? Can't you see what they're doing? Like the plot of a horror film or the start of a crime thriller, the Roden family massacre in Ohio's Pike County seems unreal. Someone described it as one of the most heinous crimes that had ever been committed in the state of Ohio. A bitter custody battle between Edward Jake Wagner and Hannah Marie Roden, Hannah May Roden, turned into a deadly bloodbath. Originally, the Wagners had set their vengeful sights on Hannah. But after she admitted on a Facebook post that she had no intention of giving Edward custody of their daughter, the target grew to include anyone who stood in their way, anyone who might be able to connect the Wagner family to the crime they were about to commit. And on April 21st, 2016, in the dead of night, Billy Wagner and his two sons, Edward and George, snuck up to the Roden family's property and slaughtered eight members of the Roden family at four separate residences. Angela Canepa, a special prosecutor in the case, said this in court, this was not a crime of passion. This was not a fit of rage. This was not in self-defense. These murders happened after a period of three months of planning and plotting and purchasing and preparing and executing eight individuals of, fam of a family. Where are you, God? Why did you allow this to happen? And when I read this article, it reminded me of the planning and plotting of the wicked that the psalmist describes in verse 8 through 11. They lurk in ambush in the villages, waiting to murder innocent people. They are always searching for helpless victims. Like lions crouching and hiding, they wait to pounce on the helpless. Like hunters, they capture the helpless and drag them away in nets. Their helpless victims are crushed. They fall beneath the strength of the wicked. The wicked think, God isn't watching us. He has closed his eyes and won't even see what we do. The fourth description of the wicked is that the wicked are violent. They have no reverence for the sacredness of life. They are always prowling, hunting, help, hunting for helpless victims. The fifth description, the wicked are vulgar. In verse three, they curse the Lord. Verse seven, the mouths of the wicked are full of cursing, lies, threats, trouble, and evil are on the tips of their tongues. And so when the writer of the psalm is taking this all in, as he's thinking about what he's hearing, what he's seeing, maybe he's even been a victim of a crime himself. Maybe he's had a loved one who's been caught up in the sights of a wicked man or woman. As he's taking it all in, the godlessness, the arrogance, the greed, the violence and vulgarity, he's grieved by these thugs, the cruel oppression of the poor and the brutal domination of the weak. 
He's horrified by these predators, how they enjoy to stalk the poor, tormenting the helpless, and with a clear conscience attacking those who are unable to defend themselves. Did you hear of the 70-year-old woman from Daly City who was a victim of a home invasion? Apparently, she was watering her plants in the front steps of her home when a man dressed in a utility uniform, carrying a laptop, approached after she went inside. At the same time, un- unknown to her, the woman, un- unknown to the woman, two more individuals entered her backyard. And when the woman tried to run back to the front door, the man dressed in the utility uniform broke in, choked her, beat her, and steal- stole her entire life savings. As the psalmist is considering how twisted, deceptive, and manipulative wicked people can be, it fires up within him a sense of justice. Righteous anger crashes over him like a wave, and he boldly asks God, Lord, why? Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Have you ever dared fire off questions like these to God when you pray? Maybe you haven't because it seems disrespectful. Maybe these questions don't sound hopeful or or faith-filled. But this is why I love the Psalms, and if you don't already do, I hope you begin to love them. The Psalms are real. They're raw. There really is a, a Psalm for every occasion of our lives. And this Psalm makes a strong case that asking these kinds of prayerful questions is okay because they're honest and genuine. Whether they're coming from a place of frustration or anger, depression or discouragement, discouragement, God sees and God hears. And so I think one of the first takeaways from this Psalm is this. Don't be in shock by how depraved humanity can be. The reality is that we are all wounded people living in a broken world among wounded people. And this psalm is helping us grapple with those very real moments and seasons of life when it seems that the wicked are prevailing and wicked people are succeeding. So what should you do? What should you do when you're watching wickedness in your city and it feels like God has ghosted you? What should you do when it seems like God is hiding his face and ignoring when someone you love is in the, in the crosshairs of the wicked? Here's what this psalm is telling you to do. Pray. Pray when God feels distant. When God seems to be hiding, pray. Pray. But isn't prayer supposed to be a holy moment between you and your creator? Isn't this supposed to be a time of vulnerability where you express, where prayer is like this, an expression of your close connection with your heavenly father? But how in the world are you supposed to pray when he feels far away? When he feels distant, when it seems like he's ignoring? Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But remember what this psalm is. This psalm is not just words written on a page of someone's prayer journal. These are the inspired words of God. And that should radically change how you read this psalm. Think about it. As the author was composing this prayer, 
God was actively guiding him so that when we understood this psalm, it would teach and, and direct us. Folks, God was supernatural, supernaturally arranging his words even when he was feeling ghosted by him. That's for you. <laughs> so what was your reaction the last time you heard about someone getting pleasure from taking advantage of the vulnerability of unaware, naive people? What should you do when you feel overwhelmed by the wickedness around you and disappointed by what seems to be God's inaction? Pray. This is the first lesson this psalm is teaching us. Pray. Why? God is with you and active in you even when you feel he's not there. So pray. Even if that prayer begins with questions that express your doubts and hesitations. God, you said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You said, I am with you even to the end of the age, but it sure does seem like you're ghosting me. Pray when God feels distant. Pray when the wicked seem to be succeeding. And here's the second lesson. This second lesson is that the psalm is teaching us is how to pray. How should we pray? Look at verses 12 through 18. Arise, O Lord. Punish the wicked, O God. Do not ignore the helpless. Why do the wicked get away with despising God? They think God will never call us to account, but you see the trouble and the grief they cause. You take note of it and punish them. The helpless put their trust in you. You defend the orphans. Break the arm of these wicked, evil people. Go after them until the last one is destroyed. The Lord is king forever and ever. The godless nations will vanish from the land. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cry and comfort them, you will bring justice to the orphans and the oppressed so mere people can no longer terrify them. Amen. Let's do it. Amen. So number one, how should you pray? Pray for the wicked. Pray about the wicked. Notice in verse 12, punish the wicked, break the arm of the wicked, pursue them until the last one is destroyed. Whenever the Bible mentions the arm or the hand in this as a metaphor, sometimes it even mentions the, the arm of the Lord or the hand of the Lord, it's a, it symbolizes the way or the power that someone uses to accomplish something. I remember when I was a teenager living in New York, I remember taking public transportation to go visit a friend in New Jersey. And... I arrived a few minutes early, and as I was waiting to catch the bus out of nowhere, two guys appeared and lured me into playing the shell game right there on one of the guy's palms. One of the guys held his hand like this. He had the three shells and the little ball, and he, the other guy was there doing this number, you know, showing me the ball right there. On the, it was right there in my face, like up close. They demonstrated a few times to show me how simple it was to play, and before asking me to put up some money, they even let me play around to build up my confidence. I thought, how could I lose? <laughs> Folks, it happened so fast. Before my brain even caught up with what had happened to me, they were walking away with my $60. These con artists looked for someone to con. And when they spotted me, I became the mark. They set the trap. And I got caught. 
How should we pray for con artists, for thieves, for bullies? Pray that God would punish them. Break their arms, God. Literally, what he's saying is, God shattered their power. Neutralize, imagine someone with a dislocated elbow or shoulder. Neutralize, disrupt their evil plans and render those plans ineffective. It might not sound very Christian, but this is the most compassionate and loving and merciful thing you can do. Because the hope is, as God has done before, he's dislocated hips, he's blinded people to humble them out. And that as a result of that humility of giving them a mouthful of what they've been dishing out, that they would realize, I'm guilty, that they would repent. So pray for and pray about the wicked. How should we pray? Number two, pray like someone who knows God. See, the two questions that the psalmist opened his prayer with and ex- were also exposing that he, even though he believed in God, he was experiencing a lapse of faith in God. And I think as he was describing the wicked in verses 2 through 11, he also gives a glimpse into some of his uncertainties. God, have you, are you so far removed that you don't see what they're doing? The wicked look at your inactivity and they think that you're dead. And I'm beginning to think that they're right. But all of a sudden a shift happens in verse 12. A loud shout of confidence pierces this cloud of doubt. Arise, O Lord. And notice the confidence in verse 14. You see, you will take note of it. You know the hopes of the helpless. You will hear, you defend, you will bring justice. See, that confidence, it comes from, he stops preoccupying himself with the wicked and he begins to pray as someone who knows who his God is. Pray like someone who knows God. He tells us in verse 11, here's what the wicked think. The wicked think God is watching, he's closed his eyes, he won't see anything. But that's not you. You know God. You know that he does see, that he is omniscient. So pray as someone who does know that God sees. He sees the trouble and the grief. He hears the weeping of those who are hurting. He knows the desires of the hopeless. Don't talk and think like the wicked person. The wicked person thinks in verse 13, God won't hold us accountable. But you know God. You know that he is a defender. So pray like that. Pray like someone who knows that God will defend and stand up for those who can't protect themselves. The wicked think in verse six, nothing bad will ever happen to us. That's not the kind of God that you believe in. You know God, you know he is a just judge. And since that is who he is, he will avenge those who are taken advantage of. So when you pray, Pray like someone who knows a God who is a just judge. Pray like someone who knows God. How should you pray? Number one, pray for the wicked. Pray about the wicked. Number two, pray like someone who knows God. And number three, pray with the end in mind. He mentions the Lord being king forever and ever. Even now, 
He mentions the godless nations will vanish at some future point. They will vanish from the land. You will bring justice to the orphans and the oppressed so mere people can no longer terrify them. Just because God is delaying his justice doesn't mean he, was, he is also denying his justice. He is a sovereign king who is reigning supreme. He hasn't lost control. He will remain in control forever and ever. Even, even if you disagree with his reasons, you might not like his methods. You might firmly disapprove of his timing. He can still be trusted. He will do what is right in the right way and at the right time because this God whom you know is entirely righteous. He is unfolding a glorious and wise plan that will result in perfect justice, both in the severity for the wicked and in quality on behalf of their victims. And I want to close with this thought. Oftentimes when we see wicked people winning, succeeding, and we see wickedness prevailing. Our tendency for those of us who are spiritual is to complain. We complain as if we're better than, or, you know, those are the wicked people. We're righteous. We're... And we forget how deeply sin has fractured all of us that were it not for the grace of God, we'd be right there. What's inside of that wicked person is inside of here. And I am just as capable, you and me are just as capable of that kind of wickedness. Someone who humbly acknowledges how deeply sin has fractured us instead of righteously, self-righteously complaining, that person will know a thing or two about crying out to God in prayer. Even if that prayer begins with questioning God's presence and awareness of the situation. Can you think of anyone who saw the wicked appear to win? Who saw, experienced wickedness prevailing? I can. And he's the model that I hold up to you as to how to pray in, this, in, these, in these seasons. Jesus saw greed in the temple when he went in there and turned over all the tables. He experienced the wicked religious leaders waiting in ambush, trying to set him up with trick questions and then twisting his words. Or what about even in the garden? Under the cover of night, when in order to identify him, he had to be kissed by Judas for them to know who to grab. And who can forget while he was on the cross bearing the weight of your sin, my sin, the world's sin, he really did experience what it was like to have God hide his face when he prayed from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prayed for his enemies, for those who were jeering at him, for those who were shaking his fist at him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And then he wrapped it up with complete trust and confidence in God. He prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's the model of how we can pray this, of how to pray when the wicked are winning, when wickedness seems to be prevailing. And that's the first lesson that this psalm is teaching us. This psalm is teaching us to pray. Pray when God seems far away. Pray when he seems to be hiding his face. And the second lesson is how to pray. Pray boldly for or about the wicked. Pray confidently like someone who knows God. And number three, pray humbly with the end in mind. Amen? And so, Father, we... Thank you for this model prayer. It's so real, Lord. It's, it's expressing an emotion, a frustration, an anger, a cry for justice that we all have felt, perhaps are even feeling right now, and as things continue to get dark, and we will continue to feel. And so, Lord, we pray this psalm over ourselves. Arise, O Lord. Show yourself strong on behalf of those who are poor, those who are weak, those who can't defend themselves. Establish that you are a righteous God. Bring those wicked people to their knees, Lord, in humility that they might believe in you. Deal, Lord God, with them. We ask these things in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.